0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Neil Selwyn about his new book, What is Digital Sociology, published in 2019 by Polity Press. Neil is a professor in the Faculty of Education at Monash University. His research and teaching focuses on the place of digital media in everyday life and the sociology of technology, use, and non-use in educational settings. Neil has written extensively on a number of issues, including digital exclusion, educational technology policymaking, and the student experience of technology-based learning. Neil, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Christina. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. So I wonder if you'd begin the interview by just saying a few words about yourself.
1: Yeah, um, I'm very old. I've been um, looking at digital technology since 1995. I'm I'm a social scientist. um, So yeah, I kind of work around the areas of sociology of education, policy sociology, but I've always kind of looked at digital technology and in two ways, mainly I'm best known for my stuff on education. So I'm really interested in how digital technology meets education from K-12, college, adult education, informal education. Um, so, and I also work in what used to be called the area of digital divide research or digital inequalities. And so, as you said, that's looking at kind of low use and no use of specific technologies. Why do people not use technology? So, yeah, I've been doing this for far too long, twenty twenty one 21 years.
0: That's good. That's good. You have expertise in the topic. Um, so, yeah, that's awesome. So how did you come to write this book in particular? Like what what inspired you?
1: Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, if I'm being honest. And the short answer is I was asked to write it. Um actually Polity asked me to um pit, put a pitch in for it, which is really weird because I've spent decades trying to get books published on this topic with no interest at all. So when a publisher actually <laughs> asks you, Do you want to write it? Like, yeah, of course I will. Um but the reason I guess I was I was asked, because they don't just randomly ask anybody, was I've written a few books for them already. Um and I also had digital sociology as part of as part of my bio. A tagline on my website and Twitter and everything else. So I guess the life lesson is put on your tagline what you want to be, have a decent tagline. Um, so I think they must have seen the fact I was saying I was a digital sociologist. They wanted a book about digital sociology. Um, so I was asked um, and I was really pleased to as well because, I mean, I think digital sociology is a really interesting area of, of sociology. I've been involved in it in the past seven years, I guess, seven, eight years. Um, so I was very pleased to write it and I've been involved in, Uh, edited collections before in digital sociology. So I had a bit of a background. Um, So yeah, I'm more than happy to give it a go.
0: Yeah, we're definitely seeing um, an increase in people studying like digital. So even in my department, um, we have a lot of computational social scientists who are interested in using big data. Um, So they often consult digital social literature. So I'm getting a little bit of exposure to that. Really interesting stuff. But prior to reading your book, I didn't know a whole lot about it. Um, But now I feel much more educated on digital sociology. I think it's a great book, and I think it's very accessible for someone like me who studies sex and gender, who doesn't really um, dabble in the literatures of digital social that often to have a good overview of the topic. So I really appreciated the book in that sense. But let's start by just defining digital sociology for listeners. So what is digital sociology and why is it important? (laughs)
1: I mean, the title of the book is What is Digital Sociology? So I guess I should say, well, you have to read the book to find out. Um, And and even then, I'm really careful to say that it's a very personal account of what I think digital sociology is. It's another digital sociologist would have a completely different description. Um, I like one of the early things I read online that got me really interested in digital sociology was a guy called Mark Carrigan, who's from the UK, works at Cambridge University. And in a blog post, actually, he described it as sociological work that relates to the digital is directed at the digital, but also of the digital. Um, so digital sociologists love to talk about the digital in scare quotes a lot. Um, but so I, I guess it's a, a form of sociology that's, that's fit for the, the societies that we live in today. You know, the societies are digitally networked. They're profoundly entwined with digital devices and, and data systems. And so it's really just a way of holding those types of digital societies to account. Um, And also, and this is a really kind of key part that I wanted to get across in the book, it's not just looking at what's happening now, but it's also constructing plausible alternatives um, and kind of advocating for better futures. So I think one of the key things that digital sociology is really interested in is asking, as well as what is going on, but also how can things be otherwise? So there's a bit of a kind of focus on thinking about how our digital societies, our digital lives could be different. Um, The internet that we have at the moment is only one of many internets that we might have had. How could we reimagine a different type of internet? So it's a fascinating area to work in. Um, and I think that's why it's important. But if um, I'm kind of boosting the idea of digital sociology, I'd also want to kind of dampen enthusiasms as well. It's really important not to get too carried away. I mean, this isn't a completely new or superior form of doing sociology. And in some ways it's... it's I think in the book, I call it a moment rather than a movement. It's not this kind of unified new dogmatic set of principles different way of doing sociology. It's just a kind of loose and kind of deliberate refocusing of our attention and our effort and thinking towards the digital. So I guess in 20 years time, there probably won't be much talk of digital sociology, but I think it's really highly probable that all elements of sociology will be digital. So we will be by default digital sociologists.
0: Yeah, I can't think of many subfields of sociology that don't have a digital component to them, or that we could argue they have a digital component to them.
1: No, absolutely. Um, I'm sure first, your research
0: sort of going back, you mentioned... Go ahead.
1: So I was, I was just going to say in response to that, I mean, absolutely, your research, I'm sure, is digital. I'm sure when you've looked at kind of gender and feminism, women, women's studies, I mean, the digital is there. And digital sociologists are not claiming that they have some kind of amazing insight into things that other sociologists don't. It's just that we're kind of probably start with questions about the digital and don't take it for
0: granted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, like I said, increasingly important. Um, So how did classical sociology lay the foundation for digital sociology? I think that's an important question. Like, how did we get here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I was very keen in the book to kind of emphasize this, (laughs) because I was talking to older colleagues, um, much more experienced sociologists than me, and I often found they had a really adverse reaction to the idea of digital sociology. They'd raise their eyebrows and kind of say, oh, we've been doing this for a long time. This is not a new thing. And they kind of distrusted it. And I think, as I said before, I'm trying to get across that this isn't a new type of sociology that's somehow better. There's nothing, you know, we've been asking the same questions for centuries, so if my, one of my colleagues says, oh, surely Marx or, you know, Deleuze or Foucault dressed all this year, decade ago, the answer is yes, they did. And digital sociology is a continuation um, of all these traditions. So it's just another kind of phase in, in sociology. And so in that respect, classical sociology is a brilliant place to start. And I think digital sociology is a great excuse to look at familiar social theory with fresh eyes. Um, so I think in the book, we we argue that a lot of late 19th century sociology emerged emerged in response to, you know, industrial era, the rise of science over religion. So people like Marx or Weber were talking a lot about technology in society. So it makes sense to kind of look back to those ideas. And also in the book, I had fun looking back through the, the 20th century of kind of um 20th century theorists who have kind of become a little bit forgotten, but I think are really crucial. Um, so people like Lewis Mumford talking about technics and the mega machine of the car-based societies, fascinating, or Jacques Alul, um, who's one of the great kind of technological pessimists, really relevant to today. And even if you move forward to the kind of 60s and 70s and 80s, people like Foucault and his writing on the Panopticon is still used a lot when we talk about uh, digital surveillance. And Gilles Deleuze has an amazing four-page essay on the societies of control, which is widely used now when people talk about algorithms and AI and database machines. So all of these things are really, really important in in making sense of kind of contemporary digital sociology. And there's also heaps of other traditions in the past 40 years. I mean, you were talking about your work in, in kind of feminist studies. There's a great tradition of feminist technology studies, The second wave and third wave feminists um, had so much to say about technology and inequality and injustice. And um, I'm really interested in STS, science and technology studies, which for 40 years has been really provocatively analyzing the development of innovations and technologies. And even people like um, Manuel Castells and Daniel Bell, the people that were writing about the information society in the 70s and 80s, all that stuff is really, really useful. There's heaps of stuff that digital sociologists can build on. And I think one of the things I wanted to get across in the book is digital sociology really respects and utilizes the heritage of these other sociologies.
0: Yeah, for sure. We had, um, uh, a sociologist by the name of Renee Almolang come to Indiana recently, and she does a lot in digital, or uh, science and technology studies mm. and gender and sexuality. So that's one of the most recent places I've seen these two worlds collide, um, in my own research, but, can you tell us a little bit more about the three lines of distinctiveness in digital sociology that you bring up in the book? Yeah, I mean, I I think
1: one of the points I was trying to make was that all of this previous theory is great, um, but there are some big theoretical blind spots. Um, Marx was writing about steam engines and factory equipment. He wasn't writing about, you know, um, you know, Facebook or or Uber. Um and so when people like Marx and Foucault are really, they remain really useful. They were writing at very different times about very different technologies. And so, you know, by the standards of 2020, there are some blind spots. Um, classical theory in the 20th century tradition doesn't have much to say about how technologies are intertwined with race and sexuality and discipline, disability and intersections. They can't really tell us much about the rise of, you know, GAFA, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple, or the attention economy, and they're also not so good on the kind of intimacies and effective dimensions of digital living. So because of all these reasons, I think um, digital sociology does try and bring in new theory and tries to think about new things. And as I say, these are really different technological conditions. Um, even from 20 years ago, even from 10 years ago, we've got billions of digital devices that are being used around the world. Billions of other devices that we don't know anything about. You know, the Internet of things is something, a really big topic in digital sociology at the moment. And that's talking about billions of sensors that are just embedded into everyday life, into your fridge, into your workplace, into into the street. And we've got all of this stuff about big data and algorithms and artificial intelligence. So on that respect, um, if we're talking about um, the the, the technological conditions of 2020, we're talking about planetary scale computation, as Benjamin Bratton calls it, which is very, very different to um, even... 20, 30, 40 years ago. So because of that, I think um, digital sociology does try and use new theory and also tries to engage with technology on its own terms. So digital sociologists are really interested in um, digitally born methods using um, software coding and, and looking for data and big data and all sorts of other kind of ways of doing research and asking questions that are not just using questionnaires and interviews and observations, but are actually um codes and software based themselves. So in that respect it's I think it's it is distinctive, it is new, but it is also asking very familiar questions.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um and on the other side of that, what are some of the three main areas that you mentioned in the book of contention within digital social
1: yeah, I guess um, I love the way you call it digital social as well. I've never heard it's called that. That's that's a really nice way to put yeah. It makes it sound much less threatening. Um, I'll, I'll pick that up myself. Uh, I think yeah. in, in the book, I think if I remember rightly, I was kind of trying to make three points. One of the things was that there are some big um, technical features that when we talk about technology, and particularly when technologists and computer scientists and data scientists talk about technology, there are four kind of... Um, features which are really worth thinking about sociologically. Um, And the first was networks. And, you know, in in technical terms, in technological terms, people talk about networks all the time. And sociologists, of course, have always thought long and hard about networks, but in a much more nuanced way. So I think digital sociology brings this kind of sociological slant on what a network is um, and what happens when the nodes of a network are not just data points, but they're people or institutions and machines. Um, And so thinking more carefully about networks was was one of the things I think sociology does. Um, The other big thing that people are talking about at the moment is platform and the platformatization of society. And again, in a a kind of bland technical way, it's just a very simple, a large platform that's very centralized and can act as an intermediary between customers and service providers and blah, blah, blah. But again, from a sociological point of view, the idea of platformatized society really needs unpacking and problematizing. And it's not just this kind of neutral intermediary, but it's um, it's a kind of very important conduit uh, for society. Um, and then, as I said before, I think digital sociology also thinks very carefully about code and data and this idea of datafication. Every aspect of the social mm-hmm. life can be turned into data and manipulated and calculated. And then used in algorithms and and, and automation um, automated systems um, for kind of automated logic and control. And so that again, a whole bunch of really interesting questions that I think digital sociology brings to these things. I mean, who designs and develops and is responsible for an algorithm? Um, why do algorithms decide to do what they do? What data sets are these, these, these systems trained on? And as soon as you start asking questions like that, then it gets really interesting. Um, and the other thing I think, um, that I also mentioned in the book was this use of new theory. I said before that we we don't just look at kind of classical theory. So one of the things that excites me about digital sociology is this use of hybrid theory. I think in the book I refer to as avant-garde theory, but I wasn't entirely sure what I meant by that. But it's this, there's a whole bunch of really Mm -hmm. exciting new thinking from writers who probably wouldn't identify themselves as sociologists per se but i'm asking really profound sociological questions about the digital and i think some of the best theory that we're using digital sociology now is coming from people who are working in computing philosophy geography literature design in wendy chung for example is, is, a, is a big name in this field she actually is a systems engineer and an english literature professor which is a really interesting mix of things and when she starts thinking about the internet or computational science Some really, really deep philosophical stuff comes out of that. So I think it's great to actually kind of draw upon those different eclectic forms of theory. And for me, some of the most interesting theoretical insights are actually coming from artists um, who are working critically thinking about the digital in their art. So an artist like Trevor Pagland, for example, um, is doing some fantastic stuff about artificial intelligence or even the infrastructure of the Internet. And digital sociology allows you to do all that. You can have marks, but you can also have this kind of more cutting-edge cutting, cutting edge stuff. Um, and it's a really fun place to play in.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's many different um, questions that are driving this field from across um, other subfields of, digi- or of regular sociology and other not-digital sociology um, mm. but outside of it. And then I'd like to talk a bit about some of the specific topics you bring up in your book. So can you talk a little bit about control and surveillance?
1: Yeah, I mean... Control and surveillance and power are kind of key key things that all sociologists um, are interested in. Um, and it's been a central theme in the way that people have talked about um, technology for a long, long time. So as I think, as I said before, the classic analysis would look at yeah, kind of Foucauldian, and particularly the idea of the panopticon, the idea that you know technology is used to monitor us, monitor our bodies and self-regulation and this aut- automatic functioning of power, how that takes place through, through the technologies that we use, which – you know, still holds today for lots of things. But what's interesting when we start bringing other theoretical concerns in, and I think in the book we talk about post uh, um surveillance and theory, this shift away from kind of architectural forms of surveillance to um, what people call infrastructural forms of surveillance. And then it gets really, really interesting because we're not talking about the direct watching of bodies. It's not that your webcam is spying on you. Um, 24-7 but it's the remote watching of, of kind of other data entities other data bodies um, and that this brings us into this area of data valence how the data that's generated from your technology use and about you through technology is now used to kind of as a form of surveillance and so this is where the Deleuze that, that four-page essay i wrote um that four-page essay i mentioned earlier comes in his work on control society is really interesting here because he, he talks about um individuals rather than individuals, which are kind of representations of the individual now being used to kind of control us. And if you think about data profiles or data doubles, as they're sometimes called, that's kind of how surveillance and monitoring and power is now exercised on the web. You are only as good as, as an academic as your profile says you are regardless of how nice you are to your students right. what a great colleague you are it's your google h index and your scholar citations and your alt metrics and so in that way you're being kind of very right, control and power is exercised through these kind of de um data doubles and again Deleuze talks about the idea that it's not a continuous system of watching but it's more just checks and balances and you know kind of passwords and logins and it's a fascinating way to think the way that power um is, is exercised through the digital in different ways I mean, often the end results are exactly the same you still work very hard as an academic and certain individuals tend to do certain social groups tend to be advantaged over others but power is operating in a very kind of subtly different way and that's fascinating so I think control and surveillance is a really interesting area to explore in digital sociology
0: yeah and I like how in connecting back with like previous theory that you really connect with Foucault here um, and in talking about like the panopticon and the controlled surveillance, I think that's key. Um, how about fragmentation of work, exploitation versus empowerment? How, do, how does that um, fit in with digital sociology?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we looked at in the book was this idea of work and labor and, and digital labor. Um, and, and just one of the interesting things that comes out of that work, um, sorry, that, that, that area of research is the idea that clearly um, we now work with digital technologies and we work through digital technologies. And I'm really interested in the area of, the area of digital labour, and we might, I guess we might talk about that more in a minute. But one of the interesting things about any form of working online is – from a sociological point of view, you can say, well, it's classic exploitation and you know, labor process theory. And there's clearly kind of workers are being subjugated and work is being intensified and you know, there's exploitation going on. But when you often talk to people who work through technologies, they say, well, it's really good. It really works for me. And there's this kind of um, kind of j- double bind where individuals think the technology is working for them. But on the other hand, there are all sorts of kind of broader um, inequalities coming downstream. And there's a, a, soci- a digital sociologist called Kylie Jarrett who's done a lot of work on, on uh, domestic labor, but also digital domestic labor. And she points to this kind of um, this duality between people thinking or actually feeling that they're being empowered through their technology use. It makes life easier. Um, but on the other hand, there are kind of more structural inequalities. And, and it's not to say then that digital technology is inherently exploitative um, in terms of work. There is, we have to be more subtle about that. Why does Why do people think it empowers them? But at the same time, it's clearly not empowering them. I mean, it's great that we're doing this podcast via a, a platform and we've got online recording and digital technologies making this happen, but you've put a huge amount of work into actually setting all this up behind the scenes. There's lots of invisible labor and repair work and everything else. Um, that kind of gets brushed aside. And so one of the interesting things from the digital labor literature is this idea of um, non-labor or free like work you do for free that you don't even count as work. and um, uh, Schultz describes a lot of digital labor as it doesn't even smell, taste, or look or feel like labor at all. But it is. So it's fascinating. So again, digital sociology allows us to unpack um, all, all of that, which I find fascinating.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of how um, some people view like social media work as like a lesser form of work because oh, you're just going on social media and posting things like how does that work? I do that for fun, but it's it's social media marketing. Like it's definitely work. So yeah, there is that tension between like what is work in terms of um, what we do online and how we um, interact with these technologies. And then going on off of that, I'm really interested in hearing you talk about algorithms because this is an area that I'm not very familiar with. Um, so they're seemingly impersonal, but they're not truly impersonal. They've been created by humans. So talk to us about algorithms.
1: Yeah, I guess we're living in an algorithmic society. So again, um, I was talking about how digital sociology takes a ton of technical things and then puts a sociological slant on them. So in a kind of broad bland technological sense an algorithm is just a programmed sequence of rules it's just a logic uh, and the machine follows the logic so it's very easy to say well you know, the algorithm has decided this and you give, we give the algorithm agency but algorithms don't come down from the sky they don't come down from god they've been set down by somebody they've been written by somebody so if these are rules and logics the key question to ask is well whose rules are they whose logics are they So we're trying to move away from this idea of the algorithm being this impersonal, neutral thing that, um, you know, isn't based around um, kind of human decisions, but also human frailties. Um, Somebody has programmed that algorithm. Somebody has also decided to kind of cede control and responsibility to an algorithm. You know, just saying the computer says no. There's a whole bunch of questions we should be asking there about why we've reached a situation where we're happy to kind of devolve responsibility and power to the algorithm so again i guess sociologists are really interested in asking whose interest does the algorithm work who's what does the algorithm over privilege or under report and we know that these algorithms are not perfect they there are biases and errors that are inbuilt into most automated systems most algorithmic systems and the most stark example that would have hit the press over the past few years is the training of um algorithms from most of the big platforms on facial data sets, trying to work out facial recognition and other types of of, um, automation. And it massively either uh, under-recognizes people of color or grossly mislabels or attributes um, people of color. I mean, there was the the Google Images um, uh, project a few years back. And one of the uses of the, the the facial recognition data set was it was misattributing people of color as gorillas, for example. And this hit the press and was, how on earth can we have these racist systems? And it's, well, it's not necessarily the, the data that's racist, but it's everything beneath it. It's the assumptions that were made when their algorithms were programmed. It was the assumptions that were made when the data sets were labeled. It was the assumptions that were made when they only trained these systems on mainly white male photographs, et cetera. And you can see how these biases get inbuilt. So these algorithms are not divorced from society. They're not somehow neutral or impersonal. They're very, very human. And because of that, they're very, very flawed. And again, digital sociology just moves us beyond thinking, oh, I wonder why the system has done that. Isn't that a technical oddity to this is a big social problem or a big social issue?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, Going off of that and talking about race, you talk about these two examples in your book. We talk a little bit about digital labor and now digital race. Um, can you talk a little bit more about digital race and how you use it to explain like digital sociology and why we use it?
1: Yeah, I, I think for the book, I wanted to go through all the different bits of digital sociology. So clearly, classical theory and then new theory, new concepts. Um, but also, rather than just moving straight onto methods and you know doing digital sociology, I also wanted to look at the kind of substance to the, to the, to the area. And, and there's some great work done in digital sociology. There's so many different areas. I could have looked at 10. I initially, was going to look at six. So I was, could have done education. I could have done health. I could have done families. Crime and deviance is a really big area as well. But I kind of focused on two um, areas in the book, digital labor, just as an example, because I think what we were talking about before was fascinating in terms of you know, working as an influencer, for example, or gig worker. Um, or micro work Um, and there's all sorts of different new forms of labor that are attached to um the digital and i was beginning to do projects on digital labor so i wanted to kind of just do a bit homework and double up and that's another tip whenever i write a book i'm always got another kind of reason for doing it and i was having to do literature reviews on digital labor anyway so i thought i'd kill two birds with one stone but the other thing i wanted to look at was something either gender or race or disability or intersectionality um and I hadn't really engaged much with the digital race literature, but it was kept coming up on my timeline again and again and again from, particularly from uh, North American scholars that I follow. I just thought that'd be really interesting to also have a section in the book on the digital race literature. because I don't know much about it. So it'd be a great ex- excuse to kind of teach myself stuff. And it's a big, I think it's one of the big kind of um, leading areas that digital sociology is really pushing forward on. And it's fascinating. Um, Normally, when we talk about race and technology, um, and this is from my digital divide days, we'd always try and look at how they were um, race-based and ethnicity-based differences in digital access or digital use or digital agency. But the trouble with all of that is that, um, as kind of critical race scholars say, race is not a variable. Race is a social construction. So just to say, isn't it interesting that certain... Um, racial groups have different access to the internet or have different um, outcomes from using the internet is to miss the kind of melange of um, the way that um, race is being socially constructed and deconstructed online. So the really interesting areas of digital sociology are those that look at race and online interactions, for example. Um, there's been a huge literature over a long period about how the the racialized nature of digital media, um, you know, the way that kind of um, – the visual misrepresentation of race, for example, on websites was something during the 90s. And that's moved on now to look at the kind of the, 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 kind of the consequences of people's online interactions. And so just talking about algorithmic viability, um, previously I was talking about the discrimination that's baked into AI systems and, and algorithmistic systems. There's some really powerful digital sociology work looking at that. Is, fac- is facial recognition racist? Oh, and if so, why? And the other really interesting area of digital race research which we focus on in the book is this idea of how there's a kind of digital reformations of collective identity. Um, So it's looking at the changing nature of collecting identity and collective formation and resistance through particularly social media. So there's a huge literature now on black Twitter, the use of Twitter by um, black communities, particularly North American black communities, um, as a form of activism, as a form of entertainment, as a form of interaction. And so looking at kind of hashtag activism, which is sometimes dismissed, um, but things like Black Lives Matter, for example, has been a huge kind of social change over the past five years, which is profoundly digital. But then you can also flip it over and you can see you know, the rise of kind of white nationalism and white right, right supremacist um Kind of online activism as well. So, race is being fought out in very interesting ways um, on on digital platforms, um, and it's, it's a fascinating area of literature to look at as an example of what digital sociology could do. I could have easily done something on gender or um, disability or a whole bunch of other stuff, um, but race seems to be something that the digital sociologists are, are kind of really pushing forward.
0: Yeah, I really like that section of the book where you talk about both digital labor and digital race because it really it was a good application part of the book, like, okay, this is how we use digital sociology in looking at cases of race and labor. So it was good to like put it into practice um, for me. Thank and you. then can you talk about um, some of the key methods that are used in digital sociology? Um, so, for example, big data, how sociologists use it. You talk about thick data. Just what are some of the key methodologies?
1: Yeah, well, this is kind of where it all started, really. So I think the first time digital sociology was mentioned in Anger was, I think, 20, 2009, 2008, by a guy called Jonathan Wynne. And he was writing about digital methods, basically, how we can use digital methods as sociologists. And it's it kind of seen to be, this is most people's understanding of, of of digital sociology. You mentioned before about the computational social scientists that you're working with. Um, so it's an important area. Um. Two things there, then I guess, big data or thick data. Um, there's been a big interest in big data, and again, in a technical sense, it's just very dry. It's you know computerized processing of massive sets of digital information. You know, we're talking tens of tens of millions of uh, bits of, um, of, of of data, and when you've got data at that scale. You can do some. There's ne- we now have computational techniques that allow us to do some really interesting work with with big data sets. You know, kind of automated um, processes of archiving and tagging and linking and connecting, and this idea of harvesting and mining data as well, scraping data from the internet. So, there's been a real big interest in how sociologists can work with these huge amounts of data, um, and in particular to discover patterns. Um, clearly, this is used in the natural, science, natural sciences a lot. Um, looking for patterns in big data sets. But from a sociological point of view, it's quite interesting. And there's huge hype around this, or there was during the 2010s when your computational social science colleagues were kind of making a big big play for things. Because in, in, in some ways, it, there is a promise to kind of reveal the reality of human behavior at scale, um, as Mark Carrigan put it. Because you can see all sorts of stuff in a big data set. These are data sets that are updated constantly. So it's not just snapshot data. And so sociologists have begun to do some really interesting things with big data. Um, So topic modeling, for example, in massive data sets. I think in the book, we refer to some research which looks at everything that's been written about economic sociology since 1890. And then using big big data computational techniques, you can say, well, here are the main topics that people are talking about. Here are the main methods they've been using. Here are the main arguments. And if you bring in something like sentiment analysis, which allows you to look at the tone of the language, you can even begin to say, well, here are the kind of the the emotions or the moods that are in these data sets. So I remember when I used to do research looking at how things were kind of being socially constructed in the media and you'd be trawling through for months these kind of like microfiche uh, newspaper uh, stories and reading them and scanning them. And you might be looking at 200 stories, for example. Now you can look at 20 million and you can look for connections. And so sociologists, uh, it's like catnip to sociologists. So people are really interested in looking at um, massive data sets from Twitter or Instagram or other social media. So you can look at people's tweets, but you can also do this on visual images, on, on photographs or video, social network analysis, all of this stuff. Fascinating. And it, even in, in with students, you can you can do some really powerful stuff. But... Hopefully, from a sociological point of view, you can already see the problems with this. It's a very, very broad picture, but there's not much depth or richness to it. Um, it, it you lose a lot of the kind of the social bandwidth with this. So this is the flip side, the thick data. Uh, and so there's been a pushback from qualitative sociologists, in particular, to say, well, you know, this big data is fine; it gives scale, but it doesn't give resolution. And so um, Tricia Wang is um, an ethnographer. Um, came up first with this idea of thick data. And it's the idea of using ethnographic techniques um, to kind of do a deep dive into certain points. So where, whereas you can you can spot a trend or a pattern or a spike using big data analysis, thick data allows you to deep dive into a particular case and find out what's going on. Uh, and I think Tricia Wang talks about revealing the social context of the connections between the data points. So, all right, this data point is interesting. There's a huge spike. What's going on? So that's a really interesting way of thinking about how qualitative sociology and visual sociology and all sorts of other types of narrative sociology have a role to play. And the other thick data thing I'm really interested in is um, a little bit more um, digitally based. And that's this idea of trace ethnography. And I'm getting really interested in data, digital data. And trace ethnography is where you can follow data traces around networks, technically, and then look where the data travel to and, and, and where they surface or where they break down. And then where at these points of surfacing or breakdown, you can actually then focus on the work that the data do, but also the work that's being done around the data. So at the moment, I'm doing a little project where I'm looking to see where the grade data go. Once you as a lecturer type in a grade and you give a student 78, what happens to that data point? Where does it travel to? How is it recombined and refigured and reused? Where does it surface? In what form? And then what happens around those resurfacings? And it's fascinating to see how quickly two-digit number that you've typed into your learning management system just takes on a life of its own and that's that's what makes digital sociology really exciting for me
0: yeah that is really really cool I didn't even think about it that way I did read a piece recently talk about how we could use trace data um, like from our phones and that sort of thing to look at behavior and how that's like a really great way to look at behavior because it's not mediated through like someone telling us about their behavior they could be you know, social desirability, saying something different, if we look at their actual behaviors on their phones, this is like a really good way to, to get at some of the larger patterns of social behavior, especially in terms of how people are interacting with their phones, their TV.
1: But this is, you're right, you're definitely right, but this is the seduction of data because you're referring to their actual behavior. Um, It's not necessarily their actual behavior. Um, It's really interesting when you start looking at what data can tell you and what data doesn't tell you. And again, it's coming back to what I was saying before about this idea of the individual rather than the individual. Your phone will tell you partially what um, it's certain things like where you've been or what who you've connected to, but it can't really tell you what was going on around that. You may be second screening, for example, or third screening. Or you may have given you, so it's really interesting to see what this data can represent, but also what it reduces. And so, I think a kind of certainly a, a kind of mixed methods approach using analog and digital methods is definitely the way forward. I would never trust digital data on its own. So in the trace ethnography example, what's interesting is we follow the data around. When it resurfaces, say, on the student report card, then we'll go and look at the student, you know, the, 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 the bit of the learning management system that's giving the student the grade. But then we'll interview and observe and talk to the people about, well, oh, when this thing pops up and it says that you've only got a, you know, a, a distinction, what, what does that mean? How, does that, how do you react to that? What do you do? And it's getting that kind of... Um, offline as offline stories as well as the online stories its really really important so i'd always say mix things together there's still a need for traditional kind of you know ethnography and traditional sociological methods where we do actually kind of interact with people and just hang around and not just take the data at kind of interface value
0: yeah for sure and that's that's encouraging to me because i tend to gravitate towards qualitative sociology that we're not just getting rid of qualitative sociology and replacing it with like big data work um or just large scale quantitative work. Like we still need both. Like they're both very important. Absolutely. Um, And I didn't even think about the part about how, if we even see someone was like looking up something on their phone, like why were they looking it up? It's not just maybe they were interested. Maybe their friend was looking it up for them, but we can't tell that from just the data points. So that's, that's a good insight that I didn't Mm -hmm. think about. Um, And this is, Sort of going off of this conversation we're having, what are some of the major ethical issues related to digital sociology?
1: I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I didn't write about that in the book, but it's a key thing I should have written about. So I'm glad you picked me up on that. Um, yes, yeah. there are clearly ethical. And I think actually, in a way, research ethics is a really great example, uh, in a way, of how traditional academic disciplines are slow to respond to the digital Um Digital research is clearly a different kind of space to be working in. It's a different kind of space to be researching in. And I think the main ethical concerns that we usually have are are the same, you know, do no harm. But the digital harms require a bit more thinking about. um, It's not just business as usual. Um, uh, I guess if you think about the the, the perennial research topics that your students might come along with that they're interested in doing for their projects, um, you know, why can't I just scrape all the social media posts off Facebook from my friends as data? You know, why can't I hang around Reddit forums to see what people say? And on the face of it, you think, oh, there's no reason at all. It's publicly, you know, may be made publicly available. But these issues of kind of informed consent or anonymity or right to withdraw, they're completely different in a networked digital environment. So you're right. it's There are big issue, ethical issues we need to think about. And when I, for anyone doing online research, I always recommend that they actually go to... Um, it's not necessarily a sociological um, organization. It's kind of like an interdisciplinary uh, association of internet researchers, AOIR. And they've been doing this work for 10 years and they've got some brilliant ethical guidelines. And actually 2019, they brought out version 3.0 of their internet research ethical guidelines. And if you read through that, there's a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of, but is clearly really, really important in terms of ethics. Um, There's the usual stuff about what does it mean to be informed and and give informed consent? What happens when you put people's social media posts online and they're traceable back? Do we anonymize them? Do we fictionalize them? Blah, blah, blah. Reading through them recently, the two things that struck me from the the new iteration of the ethics guidelines are two things I've not really thought about very much. The first of all is the ethical considerations of when you mediate your research through third parties. So if you're generating data from Skype interviews, for example, you're making participants engage in the data economy and all the pernicious terms of service agreements and data harvesting things that these big platforms have. So you can't just kind of say, oh, we'll do an interview on this, that, or the other. There are some kind of other implications there about what you're getting your participants and yourselves into. And the other really worrying area is this Need to protect the researcher. I mean, there's lots of, and this is in a couple of different ways. I mean, lots of research now online does involve looking at really disturbing extreme material. So I was talking before about looking at white supremacist online actions. If you do that, you're going to see all sorts of stuff and hear all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily want to be coming across. So protecting the researcher in that respect is really, really important. And then if you do research those sorts of topics, and it gets a bit of attention, there's a huge online mob that will suddenly come double down on you straight away. So the idea of you being a visible researcher working in the space, at best, you'll get some trolls. At worst, you'll get doxing and all sorts of other kind of horrible things happening, public shaming. Online harassment over your work is a really big ethical issue. And especially for younger researchers who don't identify as white, cis, male academics. You know, if you're a female working in an area when suddenly you get a kind of online pylon, it can be it, that's a huge ethical issue not something that would have happened 10 20 years ago when most ethical guidelines were being written so some of the ethical issues about related to digital sociology are ones that we really need to start thinking of both for ourselves and for our students and, and you yeah, know it, it sociology can kind of um has a lot of catching up to do i think
0: yeah those are all really incredibly important things especially on the side of researchers because i like like in our research methods class, like we often and rightly so focus on the participants, but in terms of doing research that is online, and we have online presence, and like for example, we have websites, we have Twitters, we have work. We're very accessible. It can be really problematic if we ha- if the raw, the information gets into the wrong hands, and that can happen. And yeah, it so, happens. Like, so for example, c- I research um trans. Yeah, I research transgender identity and that's very controversial to some people. So I have gotten mail, um, like email being like, you're doing this and we don't need to be doing this. And like, you're indoctrinated and that sort of thing. So like, and that's not even like widespread. So yeah, I can definitely see how these issues can get out of hand if we don't look at the ethical um, issue before we start the digital sociology research.
1: Absolutely. And it's so casual online as well. Um, I just wrote something really yeah. innocuous last year about climate change and, and, and technology. And, I, you know, I'm a middle-aged white male professor. I got very, very limited um, hassle. But I was being accused of all sorts of stuff online, of child abuse and all. you know, it, it just Suddenly thought, whoa. But because I, re- because I researched this, I could look at it at a distance and not take it personally and thought, well, this is just how people interact online. But I don't know. You, you have to have a very thick skin. So, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff I think we need to talk about. And, you know, as you say, students are kind of would be at the the kind of sharp end of this. So people are on it, but yeah. not necessarily um, sociologists. So definitely have a look at the Association of Internet Research uh, if you want to cover heads up. But we should have a sociological version of that as well.
0: Sure. Yeah, that's a really great resource. And I'll definitely be passing that along to people in my department. Um so where do you see research and teaching in digital sociology going forward? Like where do you see it going moving forward?
1: Oh, it's already going forward without me. Um I uh... I think it's going to be increasingly interdisciplinary. One of the reasons I love working in this area is most of the stuff I interact with, I'm never really too sure if it's sociology or not. And I don't think the other people are as well or they really care. So if you look at the journals which are popping up now to where a lot of us are writing in this area, they're they're super interesting. So I've had a couple of things in big data and society. Um, and Social Media and Society. And both those journals are populated by lawyers, computer scientists, data scientists, sociologists, media studies, communications. It's just a big old scrum of people, and it's super interesting in terms of the ideas that pop out. And there's a new journal that's just popped up called the the Journal of Digital Social Research. And again, it's a really great space to play and lots of really interesting people. And all those three journals are open access, um, online only, um, and uh, very interesting in terms of the way they operate. So, again, that gives you an idea of where digital sociology might be going. It's going to be interdisciplinary, but it's going to be much more public-facing and much more um, digital and fluid. And in terms of teaching, I'm, I'm hoping um, it's, a, it's going, there's going to be some kind of uh, value in this over the next few years. There are some decent courses now that are already popping up, and it's really interesting to see how kind of the leading-edge people are, are developing their own courses. So um, Tressie mcmillan Cotton, for example, in Virginia Commonwealth University has a great digital sociology program. So if you just look at VCU's digital sociology program, you can see how it's being taught and it looks really exciting. Karen Gregory as well in, in the University of Edinburgh in the UK is doing a really interesting master's in digital society. So there's some great kind of postgrad courses and curricula coming online. And they're teaching in really interesting ways as well, using all sorts of different modes And the other thing that I think is quite interesting is this hybridity of teaching. Um, I think the best PhDs now are people who are doing sociology and computer science um, or computer science and philosophy. I mean, they're bringing together different disciplines. And there's always been a push to get sociologists teaching computer scientists. Having a module in a computer science degree would talking about ethics or fairness or accountability or transparency. I would love for that to happen, for sociologists to actually teach this kind of stuff and engage with students from other disciplines as well. And flip it over. Why not have some data scientists and computer scientists coming into sociology programs and, and getting this kind of com- these conversations going through teaching, I think, could be really, really exciting.
0: Yeah, we have a couple of students here at IU that are doing a dual PhD in sociology and informatics. That's where I see this going. Um, Like in in my department, like right next door, Um, so they're doing a lot of interesting work on networks right now. Um, But then another question I had is similar to what we talk about with like going into classrooms and having courses on this. But what does public digital sociology look like in practice?
1: Wow. Yeah. Well. Yes we're kind of seeing this now we're recording this in middle of March and we're in the middle of COVID-19, the coronavirus. And it's really interesting to see how sociologists are kind of taking to digital media in a public way. Um, so already, and we're kind of early on, but sociologists and social scientists coming online to push back against disinformation, but also push sociological perspectives. Um, so in my little area of education, there's a big push now. All schools must go online or all universities must go online. And then the sociology technology people are popping up to say, well, hang on a minute. There are massive issues about inclusion if you do that. Um, the digital divide is real. You know, we have kids that don't have broadband at home or relying on Wi-Fi from Starbucks or McDonald's. So if you start sticking schools online, there's going to be all sorts of other... and a lot of policymakers and a lot of um, practitioners have never even thought about that. And so you can see this happening. And also kind of social scientists going online to share resources or to support activist groups or coordinate action. So you can see it happening, connecting through digital media to kind of make a difference. Um, And when you say public digital sociology, the person I mentioned before, Tressie McMillan-Cotton, she identifies as a digital sociologist. So I'll claim her as a digital sociologist. She's fantastic i mean in terms of her public um sociologies she's a great example both online and offline so i mean Mm -hmm. i've been following her for years but she had a really prolific online presence column writing blog writing tweeting um she still does that she's got a podcast with Roxanne gay for example and online columns but she also does a lot of mainstream media stuff as well you know she's got oprah Batting for her as well, so she's a great example. I'm not sure she was. She's probably transcended digital sociology now, but you can kind of see how the 21st century public digit, public sociology works, and you have to be online and be in there. Um, and yeah, she's a great example. We need to be more like Tressie. That would be my. Yeah,
0: she's one of my sociological role models. I love her work. Uh, and I got she, to see her at the most recent ASA. Company.
1: Yeah. And, and Tressie McMillan Cotton and Jesse Daniels and Karen Gregory set up the first digital sociology mini conference in 2015 at the ESS conference, which I think was in New York. I I was there and there was a few of us there and there was a really great book came out of it called, um, digital, um, so I think digital sociologies. So she was at the forefront of all of this and, you know, she's, they've been great. And Jesse Daniels as well, her stuff on race and, and the digital is great. So yeah, there's lots of good examples.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to look into, um, the two others you mentioned, but my final question for you is what sort of projects are you working on next?
1: Um, well, like everybody I'm adjusting to working with the, alongside the coronavirus. Um, and in Australia, I think that means I'm going to have to be a lot Absolutely. more off, a, a lot more offline. Um, I'm not really expecting, um, the Australian internet to hold up. And um, not having university broadband is really going to make my work interesting over the next few months, but, um, if all that aside, assuming that uh, isn't going to impact. And um, there's a few projects I've got going um, with some colleagues in Gothenburg in Sweden. We've got a, a Swedish Research Council project looking at how digital technologies impact on teachers' labor in schools. So the work that teachers actually conduct in schools and the new forms of work and labor that teachers are now having to kind of take on through social media and through other digital technologies. So that was my digital labor um, chapter that I wrote. So that was good. Um, we've just got a new project in Australia looking at facial recognition and how facial te- facial recognition technologies are entering public spaces and how societies have been kind of reshaped around this new emphasis on the face as a source of identification and surveillance. So that's super fascinating. That's going to involve going into casinos and shopping malls and uh, public squares and schools to see how facial recognition Uh, plays out in the next four years Um, and I'm also getting really interested in researching what it's like to work with or work against um, automated software and automated systems and particularly software um, that makes decisions and seems to do intelligent things and in particular we're trying to work out a project of um, how what does it mean to be a student or a teacher in a classroom where you've got these automated systems making decisions, um, these kind of semi-intelligent technologies, how does that alter the social relations of a classroom? Um, So, I mean, there's always something new when you research digital issues. So those three areas are going to be fascinating. But I'm kind of asking the same old sociological questions again and again and again. What is going on and how did it come to be this way? Um, So even when you're looking at kind of AI robots in the classroom, the questions you're asking are kind of quite classical.
0: Yeah, those sound like great projects. So where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your book?
1: Um well, I don't know about the book. I've kind of moved on from that a little bit, but the best place I think to find anybody, um, particularly in digital sociology is Twitter. So um my Twitter mm-hmm. handle, I think you call it that, is at Neil underscore Selwyn. And pretty much most things are linked there. So yeah, I I spend half my time on Twitter. Um Getting new ideas and getting distracted, but it's also a great place to actually interact with people as well. So yeah, oh, look me up on sure. Twitter.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed. I've enjoyed my uh, my dabble in inter academic Twitter. So great resource. um
1: Yeah, resource you, you you need to kind of keep it. At so Neil, length. I want
0: to thank you again. For- yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It can be a play. So Neil, much- I want to
0: thank you again. For- Go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, so I was, uh, this is probably not that important. But no, no, in terms of academic, tw- academic Twitter is great, but you need to keep it at arm's length. It can actually be kind of not very good for your mental health as well. So I'm a big advocate of taking a kind of academic oh, yeah. Twitter break as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. Especially during the coronavirus. <laughs> but um, I just want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Um, take care.
1: Thanks ever so much for doing this. I appreciate the work that it takes. So no, it's been great. Thanks a lot.
0: Yeah. Again, this has been an interview with Dr. Neil Selwyn, author of What is Digital Sociology?